Sound the trumpet in Gibeah, the horn in Ramah. Raise the battle cry in Beth-Avon, lead on Benjamin. Ephraim will be laid waste on the day of reckoning. Among the tribes of Israel, I proclaim what is certain. Judah's leaders are like those who move boundary stones. I will pour out my wrath on them like a flood of water. Ephraim is oppressed, trampled in judgment, intent on pursuing idols. I am like a moth to Ephraim, like rot to the people of Judah. When Ephraim saw his sickness and Judah his sores, then Ephraim turned to Assyria and sent to the great king for help. But he is not able to cure you, not able to heal your, heal your sores. For I will be a, like a lion to Ephraim, like a great lion to Judah. I will tear them to pieces and go away. I will carry them off with no one to rescue them. Then I will return to my lair until they have borne their guilt and seek my face. In their misery, they will earnestly seek me. So, you can see why I like it so much. We're, we're, in, this, we're in this book of Hosea. And, and the, way, the way the book of Hosea works is you get this insight into the way that God relates to his people and the way his people relate to him through this incredible image of a marriage. So, so the picture of Hosea that you always need to have in your head as you're reading through it is this picture of God being married to his people. Okay, that, that's, that's the picture that's being used here. And the reason why marriage is such a good picture is because just like in a marriage, God has made certain promises to his people and his people have made certain promises to him. So God has promised that he will be their God. That he will bless them and be with them and dwell among them. And the people have promised that they will be his people. That they will follow him and obey him and love him. It's actually, actually the promises they've made are remarkably similar to those promises that are made in a marriage. In a marriage, you know, you do the classic, what's mine is yours. We're going to forsake all others till death do us part. Marriage is this promise of exclusive love between two people. And that's the promise that God and his people have made to each other. I will love you and you will love me. What's mine will be yours. But the thing is that as you read through Hosea, and actually if you just look at your own life or look at any kind of history of humanity... The problem is that one party in the marriage lives up to their promises. They, they do what they promise that they're going to do. But the other party doesn't. So God's people, they do not share what they have. But instead they take it for themselves. They refuse to give it to God. They refuse to use it for the things that God calls them to use it for. But instead they hoard it and they want it. And they use it purely for themselves to pursue other things. So having said, what's mine is yours, they actually now are saying, no, what's mine is mine. And crucially, they don't forsake all others. They're not faithful to God. They run around after other lovers, or in this example, after other gods. God makes his promises, and he keeps them with his people. He keeps his promises, the promises that he made whilst his people make their promises, but ignore them and refuse to live like they've said they will. And so in Hosea, what we get is this insight to how, how is that going to work? Like if that's the arrangement, if they've made these promises and God's keeping them and the people are not, then what are the consequences of that? What does that mean? What does that mean for this marriage? How does that make God feel? 
How does God relate to that? And what we, what we get, and one of the reasons I love Hosea so much, is we get this incredibly raw insight into how God feels about the way his people treat him. You get this insight into God, the wounded husband. The husband who is, is furious that people he loves and who've said that they love him could treat him in such a way. But alongside that anger, you've also got this God who's just longing that they'd come back to him, longing that the marriage could be healed, longing that they could be what they said they were going to be at the beginning. He he looks at the marriage and he thinks, how could my wife treat me like this? But he also looks at the marriage and thinks, but wouldn't it just be so great if they could come back and if we could have the marriage that we promised we were going to have? And so you get this insight into God's heart, the pain he feels, the anger he feels, but alongside that, the longing he feels for his wife for his people. Now, I don't know what you're like when you've got something that you're longing for, something that you really want. Think about like, like those situations where you've got something and you're just like, oh, I just really wish this thing would happen. Or I just wish that this thing would be sorted out. The, the danger, I think, with me is when I'm longing for something to happen, I can see signs of it happening when it's not really happening at all. You know, because I just so want it to be true. I so want it to be a reality that I look at it and think, oh, look, maybe it is happening. I had this situation with um, the roof in our house. So the ongoing saga of the leaking roof of our, of our house that took years to sort out. You'd get a roofer out and they'd come and they'd patch up the roof. And you'd go in it and you'd be like, it still looks quite wet. But he's like, is it a little bit dry? I think it's a little bit drier. So then you pull Sarah and be like, Sarah, does that look a little bit drier to you? Like, I think it might be a little bit drier. And, and you'd start seeing, you'd be like, oh yeah, maybe it is. It wasn't any drier. The next time it rained, it was just as wet as it had been ever before. But because you so want it to have worked, you're like, I've paid someone, I really want this to have sorted it out. Then you start seeing it, even though it's not there. Now, I, I did it with my roof, but my guess is that we all do it with certain things. May, may, you'll do it with something in your life. I don't know what it is. Maybe you do it with losing weight. You know, you get up in the morning, like, am I looking thinner? I think I'm looking thinner. Like, you're not looking thinner. I mean, you might be. I'm not, not looking at anyone in particular. But do you know, you know that thing? Like, like, you want it to be true, and so you start seeing it, even though it's not actually there. You do it with sports teams. You know, they lose, you lose 10 games in a row. And then they like win a game. You're like, we've turned the corner. You haven't turned the corner. You go and lose the next 10 games. It was just a, it was just a fluke. But you want to see signs of hope there. Something that you're longing for. And so you see, you grab onto anything that looks a bit like it. We do it with stupid things. We do it with serious things as well. Like we do it with our marriages. We desperately want our marriage to be healed. And so that moment where our wife buys us flowers, we, we cling on to that gesture, believing that that's a sign that our marriage is now going to be better, when actually it's just a bunch of flowers. We, we want, when we want something to be true, the danger is that we find or manufacture evidence to make us believe it, to make us believe that that thing is actually happening. And where we've got to by the end of that section I just read in Hosea, it's pretty bleak, right? Like Andy was talking about it last week. You know, he's like, where's the hope? Where's like the good news in this? We're so desperate for some good news at this point. We're so desperate for a bit of hope. If the story of Hosea is the story of a marriage, unfaithfulness, and then reconciliation, then you're looking at this and you're like, great, we've had 
the marriage, we've had the unfaithfulness. Surely now we're ready for a bit of reconciliation, yeah? That's where we're going to be, because that's the story. Like, we were told that that was the story at the start. It's going to be the story throughout, so we're ready for it. We're, we're longing for it. Surely now is the time for some hope, for some healing, for the love of the husband to finally be reciprocated by the love of the wife. And at the end of chapter 5, you get this hint that this might be happening, so you might have caught that. At the end of verse 15 that I just read, they will earnestly seek me. So you've got this like, just this little bit of hope. Oh, maybe there will come a time when they're going to earnestly seek me, when they're going to come back and be reconciled. And then chapter 6 happens and you think, finally, some good news, some hope. Look at, look at verses 1 to 3 of chapter 6 with me, just that first section. This is the people speaking or the wife speaking. Come, let us return to the Lord. He has torn us to pieces, but he will heal us. He has injured us, but he will bind up our wounds. After two days, he will revive us. On the third day, he will restore us that we may live in his presence. Let us acknowledge the Lord. Let us press on to acknowledge him. As surely as the sun rises, he will appear. He will come to us like the winter rains, like the spring rains that water the earth. And you read those verses and you think, great. Finally, the people are coming to their senses. They're going to return to God. They're going to come back to him. They're going to live up to the promises they made him. And so we look at those words and we're desperate for them to be genuine. We're desperate for these to be things that the people are actually going to do. Things that words that they actually mean, not just good chat, but actual meaningful transformation and change. But the problem is, it's not that. It is not the genuine turning around and reconciliation that we're longing for. We've got ourselves built up, we've got ourselves ready for it, we'd love it to be the case, but it's not. It's a false dawn. It's flowers from an abusive partnership, partner, it's professions of love from someone who's not really for you, but just out for what they can get. It's a desperate gesture from someone who's fundamentally just looking out for themselves. And you see that in verse 4. What does it say? This is how God responds to the people. What can I do with you, Ephraim? Ephraim is just another word for Israel. It's another word for his people. What can I do with you, Ephraim? What can I do with you, Judah? Your love is like the morning mist. Like the early dew that disappears. What's this reconciliation actually like? What have the people actually done here? It's got no substance. It's like mist kind of there but you can't grab hold of it there's nothing to it it's just going to dissipate it's going to disappear verse 4 chapter 6 you see it your love is like the morning mist like the early dew that disappears it's not going to have any lasting impact it's not going to bring about the marriage that God longs for that the people have promised to do here's, here's what I want you to get in your head this is where we're going this afternoon Okay, if you wonder why we're talking about Hosea, what we're going to chat about this afternoon. This is where we're going this afternoon. The warning of this section is that it's possible to make the right noises, to say the right words, without actually turning back to God. And that fundamentally, whilst you may be able to fool me, whilst you may be able to fool the people around you, whilst your insincere words might make you feel better, God is never going to buy them. God is going to see through them as easily as he sees through these words at the beginning of chapter 6. He's going to see them for what they are. Morning mist. 
See, we can be fooled, but God cannot. God sees our hearts. He sees your heart. And he knows if you're sincere or not. He knows if these are just words or if these actually have any substance behind them. What's the, what's the point of Hosea? Like, why, why was it written? Why does Hosea give up 25 plus years of his life to, to telling this message to people over and over again? Why did someone think, I know what I'm going to do, I'm going to write this down in a book. And why did then the people who read it go, actually, this is from God and we're going to preserve it for thousands of years so that people in Hartlepool in whatever year it is, 2023, can, can read it? Like, why? What's the point of it? What are we meant to do as we read Hosea? I'm going to tell you what I think the point of Hosea is. The point of Hosea is it's calling people to turn back to God. That's the point of Hosea. That's why Hosea came out, went out into the streets and said to these people, this is how you're treating God and this is how God views it. The point was always so that they would turn back to him. That's always the call of Hosea. The call of Hosea to your life is for you to turn to God. That's the point of it. To stop cheating on him. To stop taking his stuff whilst all the time ignoring, rejecting and humiliating him. Now, now that is what I want personally in my life. I want to wholeheartedly love God. I don't want to be cold towards him. I don't want to use him. I don't want to take him for granted. I want to know and enjoy and follow him with all of my being. That's what I want. So I need Hosea, because that's what Hosea is calling me to do. That's what I want for me personally. That's what I want for us as a church. That's what I want for Grace Church. I want us to turn to God, to love him more. I want us to stop cheating on him with other gods of comfort or power or popularity or whatever they are. To be serious about the promises we made to him and to keep them. That's what I want for us as a church. I want us to be a church where people can say, that's what Grace Church is like. They are people who have turned to God wholeheartedly. They don't play around with it. And that's what I want for our town. So I want people in Hartlepool who've turned away from God, who are living for other things, to come to know the God who loves them. To come to know the God who gives them every good gift. That's what I want for me. That's what I want for us as a church. That's what I want for the town I live in. But what I don't want us to do is to put on an act of doing that. I don't want us to pretend to do that. I don't want to, myself, pretend that I'm living for God whilst all the time actually living for something else. You know, to stand up here and give you the chat, you need to be wholeheartedly living for God, whilst all the time during the week I'm living for something else. I don't want to be that person. And I don't want us to be that church. I don't want us to be a church where we're really good at putting on the act that we love God. No, we can pretend. We can say the right words and do the right things and make everyone think, oh, these people are really committed to God whilst all the time really loving comfort and ease and power and popularity. And I don't want that for people in our town. I don't want people in our town to pretend to turn back to God. I want them to actually turn back to God. I don't want them to come along, get enthusiastic, get baptised, but none of it to be genuine. I want them to love him with all of their being and to commit themselves to following him. That's what I want, because that's what Hosea is calling us to. Because the warning of Hosea is if we just pretend that we do that stuff, it actually will not do us any good in the long term. Because you can't pretend with God. He sees right through it. He sees it for the pretense that it is. 
So whilst you might fool me and you might fool your life group leader and you might fool your partner and your friends, you cannot fool God. So here's the question. The question is, how do I know? How do I know if I'm genuine? How do I know if I'm putting on an act? Or if I actually am loving God? How do I know if I've just got really good at saying the right things? You know, making people think that I love God as opposed to actually loving him. I'm going to read the next section of Hosea for us. And, I, and all I want to do the rest of the afternoon, I just want to pull out a few signs that are really helpful for thinking about, am I pretending or is this genuine? Signs that will help you see whether your devotion to God is real or just a pretense. Let me read. We're going to carry on reading from wherever I got to, which I think was 6 verse 5-ish, probably. So let's, let's go from there. This is God's response to the people's tearing, uh, kind of words of verse 1 to 3. Therefore, I cut you in pieces with my prophets. I kill you with the words of my mouth. Then my judgments go forth like the sun, for I desire mercy, not sacrifice, and acknowledgement of God rather than burnt offerings. As at Adam, they have broken the covenant. They were unfaithful to me there. Gilead is a city of evildoers, stained with the footprints of blood. As marauders lie in ambush for a victim, so do bands of priests. They murder on the road to Shechem, carrying out their wicked schemes. I've seen a horrible thing in Israel. There, there Ephraim is given to prostitution. Israel is defiled. Also for you, Judah, a harvest is appointed. Whenever I would restore the fortunes of my people, whenever I would heal Israel, and the, sin, the sins of Ephraim are exposed, and the crimes of Samaria revealed. They practice deceit, thieves break into houses, bandits rob in the streets, but they do not realise that I remember all their evil deeds. Their sins engulf them, they are always before me. They delight the king with their wickedness, the princes with their lies. They are all adulterers, burning like an oven, whose fire the baker need not stir, from the kneading of the dough till it rises. On the day of the festival of our king, the princes become inflamed with wine, and he joins hands with the mockers. Their hearts are like an oven, they approach him with intrigue, their passion smoulders all night. In the morning it blazes like a flaming fire. All of them are hot as an oven, they devour their rulers. All their kings fall, and none of them calls on me. Here you go, I'm going to give you three signs, three tests you can give to your heart to ask the question of, have I actually turned to God, or have I just pretended to? Here's, here's three tests you can use. The first is the one you see in verse 6 of chapter 6. If you look down at verse 6 of chapter 6, you're going to see this verse that's picked up in the New Testament. Uh, it's, it's really helpful. Um, it says this, God says, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Here I think is the first sign of disingenuine, disingenuous, turning back to God. It's this, we rely on religion and ceremony rather than transformed lives. Let me give you an equivalent. Imagine that my marriage is a mess. Imagine that it's a mess primarily because of my behaviour. I've cheated on my wife, I've spoken unkindly to her again and again and again. Maybe, maybe even worse, I've been abusive, manipulative, selfish. Imagine years of that going on within a marriage. And imagine if, if at the, uh, uh, there comes a point where I go to my wife and I say, look, I, I want to change. I, I want to turn this around. I don't want to be this person anymore. I want to heal our marriage. 
And I say, oh, I want to be faithful to you and I, I want to rebuild our marriage. And imagine that I go to her and I take her some flowers and I cook her a meal and say, look, ca- can, we, can we go again? Now, now imagine, you know, it's a stretch, but imagine that she agrees to that and she says, okay, yeah, we'll give it another go. We'll, we'll give it a try. We'll, we'll see where we end up. But imagine if that was kind of all that it looked like. So imagine if, as the weeks went on, my behaviour actually didn't change. I still cheated on her, I still spoke unkindly to her, I was still abusive, manipulative, selfish. But what I did, the thing I did that was different was I bought her flowers every day and I cooked her a meal every Friday. Would that look like genuine repentance in that marriage? Would that be likely to heal the marriage? To, to re-establish what we'd said we wanted there? Of course it wouldn't. Because gestures are not what's needed. That's, that's not what's needed to heal that marriage. What's needed is an actual change in the way I view my wife. In the way that I love her. That's fundamentally, I think, what God's saying here. He's saying, I don't need your gestures. I don't need you to come and sacrifice some animals to me. I don't need you to bring me offerings and gifts. What I need is you to change your entire attitude towards me. I need you to love me like you said you were going to. I need you to be faithful to me like you said you were going to. I need you to share your life with me like we agreed we were going to do. God doesn't need our sacrifice and offerings. What he needs is mercy and acknowledgement. That word acknowledgement is really important in Hosea. It's that sense of knowing someone. Not just knowing about them, but actually knowing them, actually being in relationship with them, loving them. What he needs is an actual change in the way his people view him. An acknowledgement of him, a love for him, a commitment to him, to living the kind of lives he calls us to. You see, so here's the first test. When you turn back to God, when you go, look God, I'm going to put you first in my life, does it primarily look like religious gestures? Does it look like the religious equivalent of buying someone a bunch of flowers and cooking them a meal? Or does it look like a life transformed? Like a heart that loves him? Maybe you're someone here today, you're, you're not a Christian, you have never known God, you've ignored him all your life, but maybe now you're at the point where you're actually thinking, maybe I could come to know him, maybe I could follow him, maybe I could be one of his people. Here's what you, here's what you need to understand. Coming to know God, turning to him, does not primarily look like doing certain things. It doesn't primarily revolve around attending church, going to confessions, I I don't know, whatever it is, Bible reading, it doesn't primarily look like those things. Not that those things don't have any value, in the same way as, you know, buying flowers for your wife can have value. They have some value, but that's not the heart of it. No, what it looks like is a fundamental shift in the way you view God. It looks like you loving him, forsaking all others, and living for him. That's what turning to God looks like. So when you, when you think, oh, maybe I could become a Christian, maybe I could follow God, what do you imagine that is? Do you imagine it's, oh, well, you know, I could start going to church a bit more and, you know, read my Bible a bit more and say more of this, the right kind of thing? Or do you actually mean, I could love God with all my heart and I could promise to be faithful to him as no others? Like, is that what, is that what you mean? Because that's what it means to be a Christian. That's what it means to turn to him. Anything else is just pretense, just mist. It's got no substance. Maybe that's not you. Maybe you're someone here today and you, you have known God. You, you know him. You've, you've come to know him. You've come to love him. Uh, uh, 
maybe you can look back to a time in your life where you did that in the past. A point where you said, yeah, I follow him and I love him. But maybe over the past years you've just grown cold to him. Indifferent to him. And you've started playing around with other gods. Maybe you've gone your own way and messed up and sinned. If that's you, if that's where you are, then the call of Hosea is to turn back to God. That's the call. That's what Hosea is all about. But you need to understand that turning back to him doesn't primarily look like, oh, well, I'll start going to church a bit more and I'll sing some songs and I'll do some praying. I'll be right. That's not primarily what it looks like. No, it looks like returning to loving God with all of your heart and soul and mind and strength. Nothing else is going to rebuild the marriage. Because that's what it is. That's what lies at the heart of it. If you think turning to God looks like external religious gestures, there's a good chance that your turning to him isn't genuine. It's a pretense. It's an act. Without the heart to back it up. So, so here's the first way to test. It kind of, when I turn back to God, is it genuine or is it pretense? Well, what does it look like? Does it look like ceremonies and gestures? Or does it look like a heart devoted to God? That's the first question. Here's the second sign that you're returning to God is not genuine. And it's picked up a number of times, um, but perhaps most clearly in verse 1 of chapter 7. The second sign is an ongoing life of sin. Chapter, verse 1 of chapter 7, I, I love this verse. Whenever I would restore the fortunes of my people, whenever I would heal Israel, the sins of Ephraim are exposed. What I love about that verse is just, you can, God just longs to. He's longing to restore them. He longs for it to be genuine. He's like, when I would, I'm looking at them thinking, oh, I'd love to restore them. But as they do it, their sins are exposed and their disingenuineness is shown, exposed for all to see. He longs for reconciliation. He longs for their return to him to be genuine. But unfortunately, their ongoing lives of sin show that it's not. Because sin is fundamentally anti-God. Just what it is, definitionally. Sin is a rejection of what God says and wants. Sin and God are incompatible. So the second sign that our returning to God is not genuine is that we continue to live lives of sin, lives opposed to God. So again, if you're someone here today who's not a Christian, who doesn't follow Jesus and doesn't follow God, but is thinking about it, here's what you need to understand. If you are going to follow God, if you're going to come to him and know him and live for him, then that turning to God will mean turning away from sin. You cannot say, I want to turn to God, but I'm still going to keep on sleeping around or getting drunk or losing my temper or whatever it is, because genuine turning to God means a turning away from sin. It's what it means. Similarly, if you're a Christian who's grown cold to God or turned away from him to pursue something else, then you need to understand that turning back to him always involves turning away from that sin. You can't say, I'm going to turn back to God, but I'm going to keep having that affair or loving my money or lying to my boss. You can't do that. A turning to God means a turning away from sin because they're in opposite directions. You can't simultaneously go this way and this way. You've got to pick a direction. So if you turn back to God, you turn away from your sin. And what, what um, Hosea is saying here is, I can see that it's not genuine because you haven't turned away from sin. You say I'm walking this way, but you're actually walking this way. God would love their turning back to be genuine, but their ongoing lives of sin and deceit and theft and violence show that it's not. And here's the, here's the third sign. So if the first sign 
is that you rely on religious experiences rather than a changed heart. If the second sign is that you continue to live and pursue your lives of sin, then the third is, is, is a bit more extreme. It's that there's a delighting in wickedness. You can see that in all that chat um, in uh, chapter 7, uh, verse 3. They delight the king with their wickedness, the princes with their lies. It's not just that they live lives of sin. It's that there's a delighting in sinful things. You find adultery appealing, you find unkindness funny, you find violence and abuse intoxicating. You see, that, that's a sign that there's not that genuine love and devotion to God in you. To love God is to hate wickedness. Therefore, it is a worrying sign if we find ourselves delighting in things which God says are wrong. It's not a good sign for where our heart is. It's a sign that our turning back is not genuine. not just that we live sinful lives, but we actually delight in the sin in our lives and in the sin that we see around us. I'm going to try and, and wrap this up. I want to I just nail down kind of the weight of this passage as much as I can. I want to I hit you as hard as I can for the next minute or two. Um, and I just want to talk about the hope of Hosea. This section of Hosea is a warning against pretense and pretense is a national pastime. We are all so consumed by what others think of us that we are constantly pretending. We live our lives pretending, constantly pretending to be more confident or more vulnerable than we actually are, to be kinder or more indifferent than is really true, to be smarter or stupider, to be more moral or less moral, to be more religious or less religious than is actually the case. And what Hosea says to us is if you're going to return to God, if you're going to rebuild your marriage to the God who loves you, then pretending to turn back will not do it. If you're going to do it, then do it. Don't pretend. If you want to love and be loved by God, then love him. If you want, to be if you want God to be faithful to you and you be faithful to him, then be faithful to him. If you want to live a life with God, then obey him. This is, this is the reality for us as gracious. This is what's going to determine what kind of church we're going to end up being and what kind of people we're going to be. And it's going to be, it's going to be as simple as this. We can either be a church of people who pretend to know God, who pretend that we've turned to him and that we love him, or we can be a church who've actually turned to him. But what kind of church do we want to be? Like, who, who do you want to be? You can either be a person who pretends to know God, who pretends to love him, or you can be someone who actually does. We can either be a church of people who get really good at pretending to know God, or we can be a church of people who actually know him, who actually know what it is to love him and to be loved by him. The people of Hosea's day settled for pretending. What, what about us? What, what are we going to settle for? That, that I think, is the hard-hitting challenge of these two chapters of Hosea, and something we should take incredibly seriously. Because if there's one place you will find people who pretend to know God, it's in church buildings. That's where they're going to be. They're going to be sat in rooms like this. But the problem is, of course, that even if we do genuinely turn back to God, 
none of us are going to do that perfectly and none of us are going to be entirely wholehearted about it. I love my wife, but do I love her perfectly? No. But that doesn't mean the marriage isn't genuine. Not one of us will be innocent of of at times relying more on religious performance than our actual hearts and lives. Not one of us will be free from all sin in our lives. Not one of us will be completely free from taking a perverse pleasure in our own sin and the sin of others. None of us are going to be genuine all of the time. None of us are going to be wholeheartedly committed to God like we should be. So where's the hope of Hosea? If if the call is you need to turn back to him genuinely wholeheartedly, but none of us are going to do that, then where's, where's the hope in this? Well, the hope of Hosea is that time and time again, the people will talk about returning to God in Hosea, just like they do here. We're going to see it again. We've already seen it before this point. We've seen it here. We're going to see it again. They're going to talk about returning. Gomer is going to talk about returning to Hosea. The people will say, we will return to God. And each time, it will not lead to the reconciliation that we're longing for. Because actually, what's amazing in Hosea is that the reconciliation fundamentally doesn't happen because the people turn back to God. It happens because God goes and gets them. The hope for Hosea is not, oh, suddenly we're going to turn back in such a great way that finally our marriage will be healed. The hope for Hosea is that even when we don't turn back wholeheartedly, God's going to come and grab us. In Hosea, the only thing which brings about the reconciliation we long for is not when we return to God, but when God comes and gets us. Gomer and Hosea are reconciled when Hosea goes to the man and pays and buys her back. It's not when she comes back, it's when he goes and gets her. God and his people are not reconciled when they turn back to him, but rather when he comes to gather them. Ultimately, the hope of the gospel does not rely on our turning back, but rather on God's loving pursuit of us. And we now know what that loving pursuit looks like. That God's loving pursuit of us looks like the lion of Hosea 5 becoming the lamb who will die to take away our sins. It looks like Jesus being torn to pieces so that we can be healed. It looks like the God we abandoned and rejected becoming one of us and saying to us, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. The story of the gospel is that when we couldn't turn back to God, when our hearts were divided, when we didn't live up to our side of the marriage, that he came and pursued us and called us back. So even the invitation to return to him, even our hope that we ever could, ultimately rests not on our determination or our will or on our genuineness, but on a God who would pursue us all the way to the cross. But the right response to that is to turn to him, to commit yourself to him, And to do it wholeheartedly, not to pretend. But as you do that, you need to know the only reason you can turn to him, the only reason you even have the desire to turn to him, is because he has come and pursued you and loved you and brought you back to him. That's Hosea 5, 6, bit 7. We're going to be chatting about that during live groups this week. Please do try and come in. Um, But that's me done for now. Let me pray and then I'll hand back to Michael.